Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job. We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Maddox. He's employed by Sports Illustrated. The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. If you have a problem with it, build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back. Crossover Podcast inside the NBA bubble. Still, we are on week... Uh, I don't even know what week we're on here in the bubble. All these days just seem to blend together. But we are into the first week of the playoffs. I know that. And... Already, some interesting developments. You've got the Bucks losing their first game against Orlando. The Blazers top the Lakers in their opener. I want to get into all that. Plus, some off-season uh, maneuvers going on there. The Sacramento Kings, they part ways with Vlade Divac. Ty Lu, still a lot of chatter around Ty for his next job. Ryan McDonough, the former GM of the Phoenix Suns, he joins me to break down all that and much more. A little bit later on, we take a little bit of a turn. Jake Johnson, the actor, you know him from shows like The New Girl. He's been in Jurassic World. He has a new show out on Netflix, an animated show called Hoops. It's a basketball-centric show about a high school basketball coach in Kentucky. I talked to Jake about his experiences with sports, uh, his time during the pandemic, and what NBA players he might like to see have cameos on this show, this animated show, which starts on Netflix on August 21st. So stick around for that good conversation with the actor, Jake Johnson. 
Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, please, one easy way you can support it, head over to Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to my conversation with Ryan McDonough. All right, Ryan McDonough is here, the former GM of the Phoenix Suns. He has made a sharp turn into the media world as the co-host of Scallon Pals, which you can hear on Radio.com live shows at noon Eastern time every single weekday. Ryan, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Chris, it's great to be with you, although I will disagree with uh, the word sharp. I don't know if my turn was sharp. It certainly was a turn. Maybe it was a veer into the media world from the front office, but uh, Scal and I are having a lot of fun doing the shows. You want to call it more of like an obtuse turn? You know, sort of like just a, a <laughs> well, it's like the car in New England that slides off an icy road and has to find their way back. I think that's the, hey, probably the most appropriate analogy. Hey, that was my car in New England that did that uh, several times over in my, uh, my heyday. Um, glad to talk to you, though. Um, and before I get into anything else, you know, it has to do with, with the bubble and what we saw you know, in the games early this week. But the Phoenix Suns, uh, your former team, not a part of these playoffs, but they did everything possible to to get here. Phoenix went 8-0 in the restart. Devin Booker, he averaged 30 points a game. Monty Williams, he wins coach of the bubble for whatever that's worth. I don't know what kind of prize that comes with. Um, what did you think of what you saw from your former team and, and the direction that they're heading right now? Well, I think as a former employee or as a Suns fan, I still live here in Arizona. You have to be excited about the future of the team. Uh, They look like a different team after the restart. They made some really good adjustments with the roster, bringing in a guy like Cameron Payne, who had a big impact off the bench. But what stood out to me was the individual improvement of their top players, led by Devin Booker, who I think was good enough, Chris, to win MVP of the bubble, again, for whatever that's worth. But uh, if Damian Lillard didn't do his superhero thing and and carry the Blazers to the playoffs, I think Booker would have been the MVP. was on the first team all bubble and then the development of a guy like Mikael Bridges who um, you know is a three and D guy that was kind of his role prior to the pandemic shutting down the league in March I thought his offensive improvement in particular uh, his his playmaking his ability to make shots off the dribble really stood out to me and so they just had a clicking on all cylinders unfortunately for the Suns they dug themselves too big of a hole Um, Chris they came into this thing as you know at 26 and 39 and they were slotted 13th in the Western Conference so when you looked at it on paper and logically looking at the standings it seemed impossible that the Suns would even be in the mix for the playing scenario between the eight and ninth seeds in the Western Conference but uh, sure enough they rolled they were eight no and they were right there and I think it was really disappointing for Suns fans but also for NBA fans in general in general given the way that Phoenix looked and given the way that Memphis looked when they were struggling uh, I think it would have been a heck in the heck of a play in series if the Phoenix Suns were able to get in there and play against the Portland Trailblazers over the past weekend yeah I would have liked to have seen that as well. I mean, Memphis at full strength would have been great, but the Grizzlies were down. Justice Winslow, Jaron Jackson, they just weren't the same team uh, that we saw during the season. Uh, you know, I-, I learned something about the Suns over the last couple of weeks. I mean, I, I wasn't a huge Devin Booker guy coming into all this. Um, I looked at him, frankly, as a lot of empty calories in a lot of ways. And maybe that's uh, superficial on my part, you know, not paying close enough attention to what was going on in Phoenix, but you know, they weren't in contention the last couple of years and uh, it was hard to to really get a bead on whether this guy was a real winner or not. But, you know, he showed in this bubble to a lot of people that he was a winner and that he can be kind of a cornerstone player on a franchise team. And I I spoke to you, you know, I wrote about him a week or so ago and 
you know what's what's been revealed to me was just the kind of the competitiveness of Devin Booker, the 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 inner fire that that get that has him. And you saw this, you know, very early on, right? Even going back to the draft process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, watching Devin at Kentucky in the 2015 pre-draft process, Chris, that was the loaded Kentucky team that went to the Final Four undefeated. They lost to Wisconsin in the semifinal, but they had talent, NBA talent up and down that roster uh, with Carl Anthony Towns, Trey Lyles, uh, the Harrison Twins, Tyler Eulis, uh, and others in addition to Devin Booker. So Devin came off the bench for that team, Chris. He was a spot-up shooter. Um, that was his role. And, and that's, you know, what was a scouting report on Devin. Uh, and then once we got him into our gym in Phoenix for the pre-draft workouts, he was super competitive. Once the one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three competitive action started, Chris, um, he, he just took off and dominated. In fact, we had a drill where it was one-on-one and basically the offensive player rotates off once the defender stops him and nobody could stop Devin. And he was scoring enough uh, and consistently time after time where at, or as a staff organizationally, we were going to stop the drill and move on just for time constraints to the next one he said no no no. these guys haven't stopped me they can't stop me we're staying out here until they stop me and uh, Chris anybody who has been in that environment even played pickup one-on-one knows how hard it is to score consecutively uh, without missing or turning the ball over once and uh, you know I, I guess Booker scored on whoever was guarding him 10 or 12 times in a row before the defense finally got a stop you know it you know NBA teams are defined by who they draft and, and in part by who they don't I, it, after reporting that story, it just amazed me that Miami passed on him, considering how many people in and around Miami seem to be really high on him, including Eric Spolster, who I spoke to on the record for that story. I mean, Justice Winslow, a uh, good player, uh, but what would that team have been if they had drafted Devin Booker? It's also shocking that Pat Riley, former Kentucky Wildcat, passes on a eventual star that is a former as a Kentucky Wildcat that part of it uh, Ryan was was shocking as well well the draft's an inexact science Chris Uh, Devin didn't do the things in Kentucky wasn't allowed to do the things in Kentucky with the depth and talent that roster that he's now doing on an NBA court uh, for the Phoenix Suns so a lot of it is that a lot of it is situation and opportunity Uh, the Heat drafted Justice Winslow that year he's had you know a good career solid career certainly hasn't achieved what what Devin has to this point but he had a bigger role at Duke Uh, Duke was a more prominent team that won the national title with Justice as a freshman Justice had the ball in his hands a lot more to make plays uh, than Devin and Justice was a guy I really liked in that draft as well. Uh, so sometimes, you know, guys are better than anticipated. Sometimes uh, they're worse. You try to get it right more than you get it wrong. But uh, certainly, you know, I'm happy about the way it turned out as our Suns fans because I think Devin Booker will be one of the best offensive players, maybe the best players, period, in the NBA over the next five or ten years. Yeah, I think Heat fans, though, are looking at that saying, man, we had Dwayne Wade back then. We could just transition from Dwayne Wade to Devin Booker have – you know, potentially all-time great shooting guards for 30-plus years at uh, at that position. Um, you know, with, with Phoenix, you know what you have in Devin Booker. Uh, Monty Williams is an excellent coach. Uh, the, the question, I think, is going to be for them moving forward, what is the ceiling of DeAndre Aiden? And I go back and forth on him, Ryan, when I watch him play. I mean, he obviously has incredible physical skills. He obviously uh, is going to be a guy that can step out and make perimeter shots and maybe be a stretch five at some point down the line. But there are sometimes I watch him and I see a guy that isn't as aggressive as he needs to be finishing, kind of lays a lot of balls up when I'm looking at him going, man, just dunk it. You're, you're seven foot whatever, you know, just dunk on people. And his hands aren't great sometimes. He fumbles a lot of balls around the rim. When you look at where De- DeAndre Ayton is now, 
Is he where you thought he would be when you drafted him back in 2018? And what do you think the ceiling is for him having watched him his first couple of years? Yeah, I think DeAndre's biggest strides this year, Chris, uh, especially uh, after the restart in in Orlando, were on the defensive end. I thought he really made a big jump defensively as a rookie. Uh, keep in mind, I got fired before he ever played an NBA game in the 2018 preseason. But just watching the team as a rookie, uh, I thought his defensive angles weren't very good. I thought he got turned around a lot and, and didn't really know the personnel. That's not unusual for a rookie, especially a rookie big, Chris, in the NBA to um, you know get out of position against some of the elite offensive players in the league. And then I I thought he really made a leap this year. Year, year two, if you look at his defensive numbers uh, with the rim protection, uh, I thought he was very good at the rim. He's one of the better rim protectors in the league. And he's also the kind of guy that uh, as teams go to more switching defensively, he can sit down and guard perimeter players. I think whenever the Suns have played the Milwaukee Bucks, he's done as good a job as anybody I've seen on Giannis. Uh, there aren't many guys physically, as you know, who can compete with Giannis, and, and DeAndre can do that. Um, so th- those are the good strides, Chris. Uh, I agree with what you said offensively. I think there are times where he does need to be more aggressive as far as not only finishing around the basket with power, but getting to the free throw line. I think that's the next step for him, Chris. Um, and look, it, it's a blessing and a curse that the guy's 7-1, he's strong as anything, and he's also really skilled. Uh, but, but I think because he is so skilled, sometimes, Chris, he'll settle for a turnaround, he'll settle for a fadeaway, where the next step for him is just face a guy up, rip and go to the basket. And with his size and speed and power, the opponents are either going to have to foul him and put him on the free throw line or just let him go for an uncontested to dunk yeah there were a couple of times in a couple of games that i saw that you know he's right around the rim and i'm just like throw it through somebody like you're a big dude like go in there and just bang on somebody and he kind of laid it up and missed a couple of shots and played a little too much finesse but maybe that'll come you know as a young guy it'll come in the uh in the subsequent years you know with ayton as you mentioned you never got to see him play uh in a his first full season Take me back to your draft night there. I mean, Aiton at the time was a huge star coming out of Arizona. Um, what was the argument you had or th- that you made for DeAndre Aiton there? Because as you mentioned, in exact science, we see Luca taking off, becoming a superstar. What was the argument for you with Luke with Aiton over anybody else, including Luca? Well, that's a good question, Chris. Uh, There's a lot there that you know I probably won't get into all of it specifically. Um, what I would say it, it was a, it was somewhat of a tumultuous time in Phoenix, as uh, the last decade has tended to be uh, with the Suns. We had another coaching change. We brought in uh, Igor Kokoshkov. Uh, Earl Watson had got fired the season before, and then uh, we moved on from Jay Triano, the interim head coach. Uh, James Jones was added alongside me in the front office. So um, it, it was a it, again, it was an unstable environment. And I bring that up as somebody who spent ten plus years in the Celtics front office who, as you know, are one of the more stable franchises. So, uh, And I say that not in any way to pick on the Phoenix Suns. I'm obviously grateful for the five-plus years I had there and the opportunity and all that. Um, but that being said, Chris, the organizations that have stability, I think, have a more sound process. And that sound process involves probably more thorough evaluation, um, more heated and robust discussion, and also more of a history and a track record um, with not only the evaluators, but the coaches and people like that as well. Uh, so everybody's on the same page and knows what they're looking for. So as I look back uh, on the 2018 draft, and, I, and I, again, I think Aiton's going to be a really good player, uh, although Luca looks like he has a chance to be a, a transcendent player. Um, as I look back on it, um, the results you know, are what they are. They'll be judged over time. Um, but I, I think our process could have been better as far as uh, Luca's evaluation in particular. Uh, he was still playing in, in Spain in 2018 in the playoffs, which made it difficult. Uh, I was not able to go see him play that late that year in May and June. Uh, had I gone to see him play, he dominated the playoffs in the EuroLeague Final Four 
um, you know, would we have arrived at a different conclusion? Uh, keeping in mind that uh, I did not have, you know, ultimate autonomy to make basketball decisions there. Uh, I don't know. But again, I, I don't want this to seem as a uh, in any way, shape or form disrespectful to DeAndre Ayton because I think the kid's going to be a terrific two-way player, uh, although Luca looks like he's going to be a superstar as well. Yeah, it's almost a curse. I mean, Ayton could wind up being a 10-time all-star. You know, but when you're compared to a guy like Luka Doncic, maybe the next Dirk Nowitzki, the next transcendent international player, uh, it's always tough. Um, all right, let's move on to what we saw this week in the bubble, specifically with the top teams who both go down in their uh, their first games. Uh, Milwaukee drops a game to Orlando, which is officially the greatest uh, eight seed or greatest no, game one team in NBA history, and the Lakers they lose to to Portland in their opener with Milwaukee. The Bucks' defense continues to be an ongoing issue. Before this pandemic hit, they were a historically good defense. I mean, they had such a wide gap between themselves and the other teams statistically that you looked at them as maybe being an all-time great defensive team. Since they came into the bubble in the eight seeding games, their defensive rating has jumped by 10 points. That's a huge number and put them kind of right in the middle of the pack, you know, Maybe you think, all right, they're going through the motions. They don't have anything to play for in the the seeding games. But then you fast forward to game one uh, on Monday night, and you see Orlando shooting 40% from three. You see the magic with no Aaron Gordon down Jonathan Isaac shooting close to 50% from the floor. That defense, Ryan, once again, wasn't very good. I mean, how concerned should we be about Milwaukee, not just in this series, but in with everything moving forward? I think we should be concerned, Chris, and here's why. They had a historically good defense. Uh, if you look at the gap from the Bucs, who were the number one rated defensive team, to the rest of the pack, uh, it was very significant. They had a big lead. They were by far the best defense in the NBA prior to the pandemic, shutting down the season on March 11th. And uh, now we have a nine-game sample size in Orlando. I agree with what you said. I think it was easy through the eight seeding games to say, well, the Bucs already have the number one seed locked in. They're not playing for a whole lot at this point. They'll turn it on when the playoffs start, and they certainly did not turn it on in game one against a depleted Orlando Magic team uh, playing without Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon and some of their best players. Um, so I, I think it's concerning. Uh, one thing that I'm really interested to keep an eye on, Chris, is the Bucks' defensive strategy is unique. And what I mean by that is they fully protect the rim and the basket uh, basically at all costs. Um, so what that means is they, they concede a lot of open threes. In fact, I think their opponents were on pace again for the second year in a row to set an NBA record for most three-pointers made against the defense. Uh, Milwaukee had the record with most three-pointers made against them on the great team last year and their opponents if, if 82 games were played this year I think would have broken that record so when you watch them play they suck in they protect the rim they have three great rim protectors in Giannis, uh, Brooke Lopez, and Robin Lopez. Um, but that means they give up a lot of open shots, Chris. And so I'm, I'm just curious to see, you know, it, do they stick with that? If Orlando, or especially if they get past Orlando and play a better opponent in the second round, uh, like Miami or Indiana, I uh, like Miami coming out of that series. Um, do they still play that way? Do they sell out to protect the basket at all costs? Because that, that means they give up a lot of open threes, uh, which means if a team is hot shooting, uh, shooting the ball well in a game or in a series, uh, the Bucks defense looks pretty vulnerable yeah it's and you know hearing Mike Budenholzer talk about aggressiveness like that's something you can control right like I mean you you need to be aggressive in these type of situations he's been saying that kind of over and over again over the last six seven games that it doesn't seem like that that message is resonating when you hear a coach say something like that we we need to be more aggressive is that just coach speak to you or is that implying something specific out there on the floor 
I think it's implying that they weren't physical enough, Chris, that they didn't play tough enough in game one, which is what I saw as well. Uh, I thought Orlando was the more aggressive team. I think if you look at offensive execution in particular, the Magic ran their stuff and ran their sets a lot better than, than Milwaukee did uh, with a much less talented roster. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what happens in game two. Um, one thing to keep an eye on, Chris, I think, and, and I look at this from a 15-plus year executive perspective, is I think there is a lot of pressure on the Bucks franchise in the short term. Uh, as you know, Giannis is eligible for the Supermax contract extension this offseason that was projected to be five years and $250 million. It would be the biggest contract in NBA history. Um, but with the pandemic, with revenues going down in the NBA, I think it's less likely that he signs that. And I think it's a lot less likely that he signs that if the Bucks continue to struggle and he doesn't think he can win uh, big in Milwaukee. So I'll be interested to see that. I mean, we look at the games on the floor, but uh, as a former executive, you also look at the big picture. And, and I think that's why the Bucks organizationally are starting to feel some pressure and will continue to feel pressure if if Giannis and the team doesn't start playing a lot better. Do you look at Giannis as being too big to trade? I mean, even if he turns down the contract extension, is he just too big a superstar to move off of? Do you have to roll the dice and believe that in another year you can win a championship and convince him to stay or whatever? Or, I mean, if you're John Horst, do you have to test the market if he turns that extension down? Logically, you probably should test the market, Chris. If Giannis says, look, I'm not going to stay. Uh, realistically, as a guy who sat in that seat or contributed to front offices with the Celtics for 10-plus years and the Suns for 5-plus, I don't know how you do that with a player of that caliber, especially in a smaller market like Milwaukee. Uh, we look at Cleveland with LeBron James. When LeBron was there, that's what people said about the Cavs, that the Cavs should do. But the reality of it is this, Chris. If you're an owner or a head coach or an executive, you say, look, we could draft for years. We could be doing this for decades. And there's a chance, probably a good chance, that we don't get one guy who's even nearly as good as this guy we have now who's probably going to win his second consecutive MVP and is in his prime and is good enough, clearly, to be the best player on a championship team. Um, so, it, you know, rationally, it makes sense, Chris. But uh, as far as reality, would you actually do that? Would John Horst and the Bucks ownership pull the trigger on trading Giannis? Uh, my guess is they would not. I think what's more likely, Chris, is they say, look, Giannis, I know how you're feeling. And this is assuming, obviously, he says, that he's not going to, to resign or that he wants to leave. Uh, I know how you feel today. We had a disappointing season. However, we're going to do everything we can, including spending into the luxury tax, including trading young players and draft picks to load up this team next year. Stick with us and let us convince you to resign here. Even though you're an unrestricted free agent in the summer of 2021, we're going to do everything we can to convince you to stay in a Milwaukee Bucks uniform. Yeah, we will sign your other brother too. We will have both Antetokounmpo brothers <laughs> on the roster for next year. Whatever you got a sister, you want him to, to play? <laughs> anyone? We'll put them all uh, out there on the roster. Uh, all right, let's talk about the Lakers and the Blazers. And it goes without saying, Portland's not a traditional eight seed. Like that is a Western Conference finalist masquerading as an eight seed in the playoffs because of a whole bunch of circumstances: the pandemic, injuries all those things that came into effect. And they look great in that game one, Ryan. Making shots uh, with Damian Lillard playing terrific. CJ McCollum, not a great shooting night, uh, but he came on for them at the end. Carmelo made a big three. Gary Trent made a big three. Uh, Nurkic is playing really well. And even Hassan Whiteside. I mean, just a, a terrific game one for Whiteside. Meanwhile, the Lakers, and we talk about trends with Milwaukee, the Lakers' trend has been poor shooting. And this has been ongoing throughout uh, the seeding games where Danny Green has struggled, Contavious Caldwell-Pope has struggled, really everybody outside of Kyle Kuzma in that rotation has struggled with a three-point shot. They just cratered in that game one, shooting about 15% uh, from three-point range. How big a concern to you 
is the Lakers shooting here? Because they shot poorly, and they shot poorly on a lot of open looks. I mean, LeBron and Frank Vogel said this after the game. We got good looks. They just weren't knocking them down. I mean, how concerned should the Lakers be right now about where they stand in this series? I think they should be concerned, Chris, not only with where they stand in the series down 0-1 at the moment, but how the team has looked since they arrived in Orlando. Um, They've had one of the worst offenses in the bubble of the 22 teams playing in Orlando. And a lot of those teams, as you know, six of them are now home. Uh, Lakers have been worse than some of the teams that were already eliminated. And then I look at their personnel and I think, or I don't think I know, Chris, they have to win the front court battle, especially against a team like Portland uh, because Portland's guards uh, with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and with the way Gary Trent Jr. is playing, they're better than whatever the Lakers have. So they have to win that front court battle. Uh, now, that being said, Nurkic has played a great role for the Blazers. And then with the Lakers, Chris, the most concerning thing to me is I don't think they have the personnel to play a different style, to play differently. And what I saw in the game uh, the other night, on Tuesday night, the game between Portland and the Lakers, is that there's so many big bodies on the court. There's not a lot of open space for LeBron. And if the shooters aren't uh, you know, holding the corners and holding the wings and knocking down shots for LeBron, then the paint is very crowded. Because you look at the starters for the Lakers, they start Anthony Davis at the four and JaVale McGee at the five. Uh, Davis isn't a great floor spacer. McGee is not at all a floor spacer. He's around the rim guy. But then even when they go to the bench, um, Chris, they come in with Markeith Morris at the four, who's not a floor spacer, and Dwight Howard, who you know can't make a shot outside the restricted area. Uh, and so I bring that up because without Avery Bradley, and at least in the short term without Rajon Rondo, I don't know where the Lakers go for answers. And, and, and to make my, my final point here is the two teams I like the best, the two teams I picked prior to the playoffs starting in the restart to make the finals are the LA Clippers in the West and the Toronto Raptors in the East. And the reason for that, Chris, is those teams have multiple ball handlers, multiple playmakers. And I think what you're seeing with the two teams we just discussed, uh, with Giannis in Milwaukee and now with LeBron in LA, it's hard for one guy to do it all uh, against good defenses, against teams that are locked in on him. Uh, and, and the way you know that formula works, the only way it works is if the shooters make shots, and they certainly did not do that for the Lakers in game one. Yeah, and I think people have been underestimating the value of Avery Bradley, you know, throughout the entire season. I mean, I know you know everything about Bradley. You were involved in the draft process with him. Um, but when they signed him, people were like, ah, it's just Avery Bradley. They're like, no, Avery Bradley's like 28. And yeah, he played like crap with the Clippers, but this is still a guy that will make shots for you and be a good on-ball defender. And then he did that all season long. And I think there were a lot of people that when Bradley opted out, they were like, all right, we can replace him. We've got LeBron and AD. Well, you see Lillard going off. It would be nice to have Avery Bradley there to play defense on him. Uh, you see Kuzma you know, making one of his five three-pointers. would be nice to have Avery Bradley taking some of those shots. Uh, you know, that's, you know, it's not a loss like LeBron or Davis, but that's probably among the top more significant losses the Lakers could have had coming into this restart, at least in my opinion. It is, Chris, because they're a team that is not very deep in the backcourt, especially now that's exacerbated without Bradley, who opted out of the restart, and without Rajon Rondo, who's out with a thumb injury. Um, They were thin anyways, even at full strength. They were a frontcourt-heavy team. And look at the road for the Lakers. Another reason that I'm concerned about the Lakers, Chris, is let's say they do come back in this series and beat the Portland Trailblazers. Well, in the next round, they're going to have to beat the Houston Rockets or OKC Thunder. That's going to be a difficult series either way. A lot of good perimeter players in that series on on both sides, whether it's OKC or Houston who advances. And then, likely in the conference finals, they'd have to beat the LA Clippers, uh, who I think are the best and deepest team in the league. Um, And I bring that up, Chris, because when LeBron was in the Eastern Conference, keeping in mind this is his first year in the playoffs in the Western Conference, as you know, he had 
a formula, and that was almost always to knock out the first-round opponent. Uh, that was usually a sweep or a five-game series. That would give LeBron and his teammates time to rest and recover. Um, he's not going to have that luxury this year. Portland is too good. Uh, the path is too hard. And personally, as LeBron ages, he's still one of the best in NBA history. Uh, but I worry about the load he has to carry, especially with the lack of offensive help around him on the L.A. Lakers roster. Yeah, I think Rondo's back for game two. I mean, no player, at least that I've covered, plays through pain as much as Rajon Rondo. Like, nobody. Yeah. I mean, the guy, and you saw this in Boston, had like dislocated elbow and played two and a half games with a full arm cast on. He played an overtime period with a torn ACL. I mean, the guy just goes out there and grinds it out. I, I don't know what kind of impact he'll make, Ryan, because I think the idea of Rajon Rondo right now is a little bit more optimistic than the reality of him. Like, he's not a shot maker. Uh, he does take some ball handling pressure off of LeBron, uh, so that that's a positive. But I don't know that he solves their problems necessarily with that group. I think I think he'll be back, but I'm not sure that he's the answer to what ails them. I'm not either, although the Lakers need something, Chris, and I think he's their best chance at finding a secondary playmaker where when LeBron drives and gets two or three guys on the ball, he kicks it to somebody. And if that's Rajon Rondo, as you know, uh, he's probably not going to catch it and shoot it right away, but at least he can catch and attack um, a rotating defense Chris, and make a play either for himself at the rim or for somebody else making the next pass. And I think that's what the Lakers lack. If you look at the assist numbers from L.A. in game one, the team had 22 assists. 16 of those came from LeBron James. Three came from Alex Caruso. And then three other guys had one assist each, Chris. Uh, as you know, in the, in mo the modern NBA, as good as LeBron James is, it's really hard to win like that, um, especially when you don't have a great shooting team. And in particular, when one guy, even the great LeBron James, has to carry that heavy of a load on the offensive end. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's We'll see if Rondo can take some of that burden uh, off him. All right, a couple off-season things uh, before I let you go. Vlade Divac was let go in Sacramento. They call it a parting of the ways, but I've never seen a parting of the ways where the owner says we needed to go in a different direction. That's a firing <laughs> with, with Sacramento. Um, yeah, it's an okay roster right now. You've got De'Aaron Fox, who I think is a, a rising star uh, at point guard. Buddy Heald is still there. Uh, Marvin Bagley has been a mixed bag, so to speak, in his first couple of years in the NBA. Uh, when you look at the Kings, is that an appealing job for an executive? I and mean, we don't know if Joe Dumars is going to hold on to that job full-time or if he's going to hire somebody else. But is that an appealing job to take over in Sacramento? Well, I'd say like most of the jobs that become available, Chris, there are some things you like about it and some things you don't like. Uh, let's start with the things you don't like. The We talked about the turmoil and the turnover in Phoenix, and I certainly contributed that to, to that to some extent. Uh, that's been the case in Sacramento as well. Uh, as you know, ever since um, Rick Adelman was there, you look at how many different head coaches they've had and lead basketball executives they've had. And, and you know, Chris, my take on the, the media side now is I, I don't say anything on air that I wouldn't say to an owner's face. So uh, I'll say this for Vivek Ranadive, and this is a applicable to any owner, I think you should hire a lead basketball executive, whether it's Joe Dumars or somebody else, uh, give that person the ability and authority to hire whoever he wants on his or her staff, uh, you know, in the front office and also on the bench, and then judge them over a period of time based on the results. And I bring that up, Chris, because it does not seem like that's been the case in Sacramento. Um, you know, people kind of come and go and they're different consultants and advisors and people who may not have a relationship. Uh, so Vivek's a smart guy and I think and hope he's learned his lesson and, and will let Joe Dumars, who's an excellent executive, uh, or somebody else in that role um, do that. So those are the negatives. The positives are 
They have a great new arena. They have a terrific practice facility. Um, they have a young star point guard in De'Aaron Fox. Uh, there is some other young talent on the roster. You mentioned Buddy Heald. Um, they have a big decision coming up this offseason, which is why I think it's important they move quickly because Bogdan Bogdanovich, who's played well, is a restricted free agent and I think will be in demand around the league. Uh, but they also have to figure out, you know, are Bogdanovich and Heald uh, compatible long-term? I think there's been a little bit of tension and friction there. And then the key for me, Chris, and this is maybe more of a medical thing than a front office thing, but uh, Marvin Bagley, can he stay healthy? Can he develop? Um, you know, it's, it's probably not fair that to compare him to Luka Doncic, who looks like he's going to be one of the all-time greats, but can Bagley still be a good player? Can he be a healthy, good NBA player who helps the team win? And, you know, that when they drafted him, Vlade Divac said this over the weekend when he got let go, they want to play fast. They want to play in transition. Uh, they thought Bagley was a really good partner for De'Aaron Fox. I still think that may be the case, but uh, in order for them to do that, obviously Bagley needs to be healthy. And in the Western Conference, you need multiple young studs to try to take a jump. And uh, I, I think it's crucial for, for Sacramento to get Bagley back on the court and playing alongside Fox. And I think if that's the case over the next couple of years, uh, they do have a talented young roster and they have a chance to be in the playoff mix in the Western Conference. Well, this is where ownership matters, right? Like you've got to make the right call on who's making basketball decisions for you. And Look, I've been critical of Vlade Divac for the last few years, really ever since he took the job. I mean, what happened with him and George Carl was just a total shit show. And, you know, then you pass on the next great European player when you are a great European player. Your entire front office consists of European players. I mean, I that that part of me just just befuddles me. You've if you're Vivek Granadive, um, I don't know if Joe Dumars wants the job full time, but I think you've got to offer it to him. And I think you've got to let him flesh out his staff with whatever he wants. If Joe Dumars wants to hire a general manager, if he wants to hire three assistant general managers, go and do it. You've got to invest capital. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but you've got to invest capital in top front office executives. You've got to have brain power in these front offices and not just give the job to one of the great players in fucking Sacramento Kings history. You, you just can't operate like that if you're a team. I mean, Vlade came in and fleshed out his staff. I'm getting on a soapbox rant right now. Vlade came in and fleshed out his staff with Peja Stojakovic. Like, he, he brought in Peja as an assistant GM of that team. Peja was a great player, but come on. You have got to add basketball people in these positions. So, look, I, I will have confidence in the Kings' future in two months once I see what that front office looks like. If they don't Spend the money you need to spend on top basketball executives. I don't care what their arena looks like. They will continue to be the team that agents use to leverage their other team they want to go to against them. They'll they'll do it like Wesley Matthews did. It just they'll send guys to Sacramento for visits only just to get an offer they can turn around and use for something else. Like that, they will not get the respect of the NBA until their front office looks like a functional NBA front office. Yeah, and to go back to my original point, Chris, I, I feel strongly about this. I felt like this was the case in, in, in Boston for me personally and, and really was not in Phoenix. But um, it, I don't know why it's so hard, especially if you're an owner who's been doing this for a while and you haven't been happy with the results. Uh, hire somebody who's accomplished 
give them autonomy, give them a budget, set clear goals, and then judge them based on the results over a period of time with minimal or ideally no interference from ownership. I, I don't know why that's so hard for, for some of these guys, uh, but it is. And, uh, you know, when, um, you know, again, people are in the mix or have voices that maybe they shouldn't have or, uh, you know, somebody's authority uh, kind of waxes and wanes depending on, you know, whatever, how the wind blows sometimes, uh, it's really hard to have franchise stability. And I think and hope Vivek Ranadivi, who by all accounts is a very smart man and a very nice guy, has learned his lesson. And he will do that with Joe Dumars or wherever the new incoming head of basketball is. Yeah, what, what successful team doesn't operate like that? I mean, every great team from San Antonio to Golden State to Miami, all these great teams, yes, they've had great talent, but they have been functional. You've had a man at the top or men at the top who uh, are unequivocal, to your point, unequivocal authority, and then a great coaching staff and great people within that organization. That's the only way to succeed uh, in today's NBA. Uh, a couple of quick things here. Uh, the NBA Draft Combine is going to be virtual. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means at this point. There's going to be a couple of, of sites and you know players are going to get physicals at hospitals. I don't know what the uh, how it's all going to work out. But not having an NCAA tournament, not having a traditional combine, how challenging is that going to make this draft uh, for GMs as they prepare to make uh, you know, what are obviously important picks? It's a difficult draft, Chris, for a number of reasons. Uh, the first is that from what I've seen, there isn't the high-end talent. There are in some years, we've talked a lot about the 2018 draft that looks like it's going to be historically one of the all-time great ones uh, with Luka Doncic, Trey Young, DeAndre Ayton, Jaron Jackson Jr., maybe Marvin Bagley, Shea Gildas-Alexander, and others. Um, this is not shaping up that way, Chris. I think this is a less talented draft than average. It's not It's not the worst. I've seen worse drafts than this one, but it is is below the line, in my opinion, as far as average draft talent. Uh, so that's the first challenge. The Players, uh, you know, aren't, aren't as good as they are in a typical year. Uh, the second, as you mentioned, are the, uh, the the challenges that the pandemic has caused. Um, most high-level executives, um, presidents, and GMs do a lot of evaluation late uh, in the conference tournaments and in the NCAA tournament. Keep in mind, Chris, from a calendar standpoint, that is after the trade deadline. So um, scouts are out, as you know, year-round. They're going to practices. They're watching games in November and December. Most executives, you know, do a little bit of that, but they, they can't do that for weeks or months at a time. They have responsibilities to their own team, especially prior to the trade deadline to try to upgrade their roster. Um, so I bring that up because a lot of uh, executives, the top guys who are making the decisions are reliant on that in-person evaluation in the conference tournaments, which were canceled and the NCAA double, NCAA double turn, excuse me, NCAA tournament, which never got started. Um, so because of that, you know, I, I think it is difficult. And then you combine that with no in-market visits. Uh, players usually fly all over the country. Uh, you can meet a player. You can spend up to 48 hours with him. You can take him out to dinner. You can work him out. You can do physical testing. Uh, you can do psychological testing, Chris. Whatever you want to do with a player, all that is gone other than what you and I are doing right now, Zoom and Skype interviews. That's really all teams have to rely on, that in the film. Uh, so because of all those things, I think it really is an unusual year. I give credit to the NBA for trying something different. Uh, I'll just be fascinated to see how it works because uh, the teams, especially the teams who are picking in the top five and are reliant on drafting a good player to help them improve a lot next year, um, they're at a disadvantage compared to where teams who are usually in those positions in previous years have been in the past. Are you at the mercy of a player's coaching staff maybe more than ever before? Because without you know those in-market visits, without the tournament, without even the uh, their own conference tournament, the, the body of work, especially for these one-and-done guys, uh, are a lot more limited. I mean, college coaches would be able to theoretically tell you uh, more than you'd be able to find out on your own. But at the same time, college coaches have 
I mean, they've got a, a stake in the, a horse in the race here. They've got a stake in the game. Like if they get a guy drafted in the top ten, they can turn around and tell their recruits, "I just got a grad draft in the top ten. Look at look at me. Look what I can do. Come to my school and play." I mean, are you in a situation like this? Are GMs maybe more at the mercy of the what kind of truth these college coaches will tell you because they don't have as much evidence as they'd like? You can be, and I'll be honest with you. Some of the worst information I ever got personally was from college head coaches about their players. Actually, I got a lot. Better, I've heard that. I've I got heard a lot that. better information from uh, assistant coaches or even you know strength conditioning coaches, trainers, people around the program uh, who aren't, as you mentioned, trying to put it on their board for recruiting that we've had uh, X number of first round picks or X number of lottery picks. Um, they're, they're just honest with you and they tell you the truth. So um, that, that, that's you know one tangent. But uh, I think what teams are doing. I know what teams are doing because uh, I have a bunch of friends with all thirty teams in the league. Chris is what they're doing now because they have more time since the draft has been pushed back and also because they have less information with the in-market workouts. Uh, some of them are, are really diving into the film. In fact, I think a lot of teams I've talked to think they're overdoing the film where you just start to pick a guy apart because you watch game after game because there's nothing else to do uh, with no individual workouts. And the other thing they're doing, Chris, is getting creative as far as the intel, uh, which is what you're referring to with the college coaches. Uh, they're calling AU coaches. They're calling high school coaches. They're even finding you know maybe obscure people who uh, it's not initially apparent know the player, but trying to get as much information as they can because again usually that's a feel in market when a player flies in you have a meal or multiple meals with them you get a feel for his character you have that information gathering process uh, that is not available right now with the pandemic so the teams I've talked to are getting really creative especially with how they gather their intel and uh, you know they hope that'll make uh, their decisions a little bit better despite the fact that they're not able to have workouts in their market all right last question for you you've got the uh the coaching openings starting to to pick up a little bit. The Pelicans let go of Alvin Gentry. Chicago part ways with Jim Boyland. Could be a few other jobs opening up in the next couple of weeks. We know the Nets at some point are going to do uh, some kind of national search. Maybe Philadelphia, maybe uh, some other teams. Uh, Ty Lue seems to be at the center of this storm. And you're f- very familiar uh, with Ty Lue, who, uh, of course, won a championship in Cleveland, now on Doc Rivers' staff. Um I think it could get to the point, Ryan, where he turns down, like where he could have to turn down two or three jobs to take the one that he wants. I mean, he could have his pick of the litter, so to speak. Uh, what is it in your mind that makes Ty such a valued coach? And what do you think the best fit is for him uh, in, in some of these jobs that might be open? Yeah, a few things, Chris. I'm a big Ty Lue fan, as you know. We worked together with the Celtics. I was in the front office. He was on Doc Rivers' staff in Boston. Uh, a couple things. I, I think the easy thing to say, and, and what was the book on Ty initially when he got the head coaching job, was relationships and the respect that LeBron James and Kyrie Irving and the star players in Cleveland around the league have for Ty Lue. That is true. Um, what I think surprises a lot of people, Chris, is when you talk to Kendrick Perkins, who is on our show on ScalaPalsRadio.com, and other guys who have played for Tyron Lue, they say, no, he's not just a motivator. He's not just a relationship guy. He is a coach. He is an X and O guy. He is a schemer. Um, so he can really do everything from a coaching perspective. I think his track record uh, reflects that. Now, look, he had great players, obviously, uh, with LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love. Um, but, you know, his, his track record uh, for a young coach is as good as any in recent NBA history, Chris. So I think for all of those reasons, he's really in demand. Um, two jobs I would keep an eye on from, from him that I keep hearing from my sources around the league. I know you're hearing the same. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets, if they do make a change, 
change, although I think Jacques Vaughn, with what he's done, deserves strong consideration there. And then in particular, uh, the New Orleans Pelicans, which I think the, the synergy and fit with David Griffin, who was the GM in Cleveland, who made the controversial change uh, to let go of David Blatt, to move on from Blatt, and, and appoint Ty Lue, the head coach, on a team that was winning, uh, a team that had just gone to the NBA Finals the year before and ended up going again uh, that year and winning the championship that year. Uh, keep an eye on that. And it's interesting, Chris, because I don't know from Ty Lue's perspective which one is more desirable. Uh, Brooklyn is the more ready-made team, assuming Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving come back healthy. Uh, Karis LeVert you know, looks like a star in the, in the restart in Orlando so far. They'll get Spencer Dinwiddie back. So that is a loaded championship contending roster. Again, assuming KD is healthy, which I think is a big question mark. Uh, but then New Orleans it has all the young talent with Zion, with Brandon Ingram. Alonzo uh, Ball struggled in the restart. We'll see if he can get his jump shot on track. But they also have some good veterans like Drew Holiday and J.J. Redick. So uh, I think if Ty Lue wants to win right away, it's Brooklyn. And if he is willing to be a little more patient and maybe even have a little more longevity given the age and talent in the roster, uh, keep an eye on him potentially going to the New Orleans Pelicans. I think that some people questioned Ty Lue when he turned down that Lakers job last year, but he could turn around and play these teams against each other and wind up with like a five-year deal at six, seven million dollars per year, maybe more. I mean, he might have played this perfectly, Ryan. I mean, he could walk away potentially with a championship as an assistant coach and then walk into a coaching job that if it's Brooklyn could lead to a championship next year as a head coach. I yeah. mean, he he might he might have played this perfectly, you know, Ty Lue. I give Ty Lue a lot of credit for this too, Chris. It would have been very easy for him to, to sit at his house in Las Vegas and collect checks because he's still getting paid by Cleveland. But uh, he did the same thing that Jason Kidd did on the Lakers bench. Those guys wanted to work. They, they, they again, they're, they're, you know, made a lot of money as players, especially in Jason's case, uh, and now coaching in, in the case of Jason and Ty. But those guys wanted to work. They got back on benches, which I think makes them, uh, you know, NBA head coaching candidates again quicker than it had they sat at home. And Ty Lue, I completely agree with you. I think he will have his his choice of jobs. Um, if I had handicap it I guess he ends up in New Orleans um, but Brooklyn is an intriguing one uh, although think of all the issues you know that you have to deal with there Chris you know Kyrie Irving um, you know from being around the Celtics uh, in that market with KD coming back there is a lot more short-term pressure on the Brooklyn Neds head coach next year than there is if you are the head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans yeah especially if you replace Jacques Vaughn and the memory of Jacques Vaughn is going to be how well he coached this team this summer and why didn't you give him a chance? And if that team struggles around the gate and there's some dysfunction, uh, a lot of that could you know fall into Ty Lue's shoulders uh, pretty quickly. Ryan, always appreciate talking to you, man. Scallon Pals, every weekday, noon Eastern time on, the ra on radio.com, the radio.com app. I, I will say this, we've been doing this uh, the show via Zoom, and there's a picture of Scalabrini behind your right shoulder. <laughs> it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. It's 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 spooking me a little bit. Chris, that, that, that's a, an autograph picture. Uh, cost twenty two dollars. <laughs> it showed up from a shady office park in China. And, and just for for your for your listeners or your viewers in particular, um, you know who, who haven't got a good look at this, I think most of them thought I had a Celtics hat on, Chris. Uh, that is actually a Brian Scalabrini, uh, 44, in the Leprechaun logo. Um, so, yeah, it, there's a show, My Strange Addiction. Uh, and I think one final thing here, I think I have a problem, Chris, where I'm trying to go cold turkey and give up all this Brian Scalabrini memorabilia. But as of now, I've not been able to quit buying Brian Scalabrini theme memorabilia. Has Brian Scalabrini become your boss? Like in, have we come full circle? No. I mean, you were part of the organization that signed him. Has Scal become... Your employer? No, I, I never listen to a thing that guy says, and that's including on our, on our show on Radio.com. <laughs> hey, Ryan, appreciate it, man. Stay, uh, stay well out there, and uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Chris. Coming up next, my conversation with Jake Johnson.
This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr. And I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back. And joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jake Johnson's here. You know him from shows like The New Girl, Stumptown, also starred in Jurassic World. His newest show is Hoops, an animated sitcom about, let's call him a foul-mouthed basketball coach trying to make it big. That debuts on Netflix on August 21st. And Jake joins me here on the show. Did I describe that accurately, Jake? Is that a good one sentence yeah, it's description? A, you know, it's an R-rated uh, show about a uh, coach. I think it's high school kids, and he can't get out of his own way. It's Bad News Bears meets Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's a hard, hard R that is for adults only. Uh, it is as vulgar as you can imagine. <laughs> it is 
a fuck around show. There's no deep message to it. There's nothing, there's nothing to it besides hopefully people who are bored during quarantine can just sit around and hopefully get some laughs. And that's really all this one is. So not something, and you got two young daughters, not something that when they get no. a little bit older, daddy's in a cartoon. I want to watch no. in a cartoon. <laughs> no, no. You know, I would even say like 14-year-old slowdown, 15 slowdown. You know, it's for <laughs> adults. It's disgusting. We hope there's no messages in there that are hatred. So all that your kids would be exposed to is disgusting language, which just keep them away from it. And, and you don't, there's no buildup to that either. Like I watched the pilot and right off the bat, you're having a biblically nasty break uh, uh, reaction to a referee. And it's like, all right, well, here, this is the show. This is what it's so, going to be. The, the thing that I've been saying while doing press for it and when this was presented to me and we, you know, I realized we made this seven years ago, the, that opening scene you saw, and then it went away and then it came back with Netflix is if you don't, if the first minute throws you, you're not comfortable with it, it's not your sense of humor or it offends you, turn it off because it's not going to get better. I'm not convinced it's going to get worse. But what I like about what Hoops is, is it wears what it is on the sleeve. You either like this individual or you do not like this individual, but it's not going to grow and change and evolve. If Netflix doesn't exist, does this show get made? No, I know that as a fact because we made this about seven years ago. Ben Hoffman, who created it, he's really the he's the guy behind it. It's his comedic tone. It's his voice. It's his show. Um, he, uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord, who are producing it, came to me and we made this for MTV, which at the time, seven years ago, that was where you could go for to try to make something outside of the box. Not only did they pass on it, but everybody passed on it. So this only exists now in the world of streaming because, mm -hmm. you know, Netflix also believes, I think, that they can cater things just to adults, you know, with their parental uh, controls or whatnot. So this couldn't make it on cable. This is never near network. This is a streaming show. Netflix has to be great for actors. I mean, just the, the shows they'll make and even the movies they'll make is stuff that Hollywood won't even make anymore, right? I mean, it's like they'll do blockbusters, but those niche shows and the niche movies. Totally. I mean, I, I mean, I love you know the movies that I used to grow up. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Beautiful Girls. I don't know if you remember seeing it, Tim Hutton, Lauren Holly back in the day. That that movie never gets made in today's market. Like it, Netflix creates that stuff. I agree. I, you know, it's complicated though to me. The I moved out to Los Angeles in 2004 to make it in this business and. I'm not sure if YouTube had already started, but it hadn't already started in my world in 2004. And, you know, I came from theater and doing, you know, improv on stage and comedy. And at that time in 2004, there was a goal because there was a few networks, a few cable places, a few big studios and a few people who made indie movies. And to get on one of those really meant something then. Well, nowadays, there's just so much content from Instagram to Twitch to every streaming device. So I think, yes, there's something great for actors that you can make any type of show now. It just means a lot less, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So the I'm not sure I would have moved to L.A. in 2020 to try to make it, knowing what it is. I would just stay in my basement and make Instagram videos and try to get sponsorship. <laughs> So it, it's good and it's bad. It's, it's, you know, like everything else, it's a new world.
Jake Johnson influencer. That could have been that could have been your path, man. You know could what? Your path. God no, I would get a day job. <laughs> uh, have you have you gotten used to the reality of virtual promotion? I mean, I would imagine in normal times you'd be making the rounds, talking about a show like this, and you know, I'm watching you this week doing a virtual panel for Comic Con. Like you're, it's all virtual nowadays. Have you gotten used to it? Um. It's what I, what I like about it is I'm able to, you know, during our breaks is I could just go in and see my family, but there is something about it all. And obviously look in the state of affairs where we're in, I'm talking to you from a, a bubble, an NBA bubble, and I'm in my back office. Right. So there's an, there's also people with way bigger issues during the pandemic than this, but it's just so surreal. You know, I, I do miss the world where we used to be able to travel and this would be in New York and we could go to a restaurant before and hop in a cab to get somewhere. I miss when the economy, when like money was just trickling around. Um, but I will say the good side about technology is that it can still happen. And I have been shocked. I do a weekly uh, poker game with some friends. Then at first when my buddy Jeff Bain had put it together, I didn't think it would work. And it really works. You know, Zoom in, we're on like a site called Donk House and we like play cards and it honestly feels like we're all together. <laughs> I'd never I'd never heard of Zoom before all this. Couldn't never. never heard of it. And now I don't know what I would do without it at Same. this point. It's it's wild how that all Same. plays out. Um as I was watch as I was preparing to talk to you for this, I was watching your appearance on Jimmy Kimmel this past March and I noticed the date on it. It was March eleventh that you yeah. were there. And that was really the day that the sports world stood still. I mean, it was on that date that it was uh, after I left that taping. Yeah. Yeah. That, that same day. I mean, watching that and remembering that experience, yeah. could you have ever envisioned what was coming next? I mean, you and Jimmy seemed to think like it was something that was, you know, there, but you could avoid it. But no, you know, honestly, looking back it, on it, it was, you know, look, I was dead wrong. Like a lot of us, I thought, yeah. I thought that this was meant to be taken seriously, but there was a concern. I remember when they asked me to do the show, you know, some people advised not to go. And I thought, well, of course I'm going to go. And even backstage there, I remember people saying like, you're not supposed to shake hands with anybody. And people had hand sanitizer, but I couldn't quite wrap my head around it just because of the way, you know, growing up in Americans, you know, I was born in 78. I just didn't think it was going to hit our country that hard. And if it did, I thought we would fix it in like two weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, and like I've now seen that that's naive, but I had deeply no understanding. And I honestly still don't. So yeah. I, I really, I have no gauge anymore of how long this is going to last, where we're at with it. I don't pretend to. I'm not getting on social media and pretending to be political about it because I don't know. That that echo chamber never works. It never uh, it never leads to anything productive. Uh, how far along were you in the production of Hoops when kind of the world stood still? We were finished. You were finished, so it didn't you know, affect I, that I at think, all. I think the animators and Ben, you know, were still doing some work on it, uh, but I had been done recording for a long time. Mm -hmm. Your character in this show, Ben Hopkins, are you basing him? on any character? I mean, the obvious one might be Bobby Knight because in that first yeah. scene, yeah. you throw a chair onto the floor and you know, that's vintage there's, Bobby. There's similarities. Ben Hoffman, the guy who wrote it and created it, is from Kentucky and he's a big uh, college basketball fan. 
And so he had, he probably has more of the influences. The truth is when I came in, you know, I grew up in a family with my mom had nine brothers and sisters in Chicago and they were really loud and really funny and shit talking was a big part of my childhood. And if somebody could tell a funny story as a kid, you got a lot of attention and laughs really meant something in my house. And, you know, there is a world of comedy where it says if you go blue, it's cheaper. If you swear you're going after the easy joke, which I understand, that didn't exist in my house. That doesn't exist. A joke to me is a joke. So for me, all I was really trying to do with this was make Ben laugh. Mm -hmm. And when I read his lines and I read that opening monologue, you know, I thought it was funny. And I thought, let's see how far we can push it. And if he was laughing, I knew tonally it was kind of right. I would say that the the night characteristics and a little bit of Tom Thibodeau in there as well. Like, like in, in, I've got a question for you about Tibbs. Okay. If you don't mind, let me transition in a little. Not at all. So the Bulls have lost me. I'm a Chicago Bulls fan. Mm -hmm. uh, the organization I have no interest in, even though I think they have some talent there. When I used to write for Grantland occasionally, mm -hmm. and I would always want to write about Tom Thibodeau, because I don't think you get rid of a guy like that as your head coach. I think even though he's tough, I think guys like Jimmy Butler and the right type of player love to play for him. How do you think he's going to do in New York? And I saw that somebody didn't like him as a head coach. What do you think his reputation is? How do you think he's going to do? I, I think he's going to do exceptionally well. I think he, he is the least qualified human being on the planet to be a coach and a general manager. Like, he should not have those roles. Like, he just, he can't separate the two jobs, and you have to. But as a coach, you saw it in Chicago. Yes. Before it imploded in Minnesota, it was really good. And he's going to New York, and he's got this rep like, you can't coach young players. What the hell were the Bulls? The Bulls, That's like, exactly Derrick Rose, right. the youngest MVP ever. Like, but he, he turned our whole franchise around. My good buddy Josh Broughton is a Timberwolves fan. What happened in Minnesota with Thibodeau? Because when he went there, uh, Josh and I used to always talk about how they were now the new Bulls because they got everybody for a while. And I thought mm -hmm. there's not a chance they weren't going to be stars. I thought Wiggins was going to do great under Thibodeau. I thought, I, I mean, I thought for sure they were going to be contenders. What do you think happened there? Well, it's it really boils down to Tibbs was loyal to Jimmy Butler. Right. Jimmy Butler didn't like the young guys that were there. So it was like two factions. Like you can be on team, you know, Jimmy Timber Pups over, over there or or Jimmy. And he doubled down on Jimmy and you know, it didn't work out. So at that point, you really, once Jimmy's gone, you can't go back to the young guys and be like, I'm here for you. You I know, guess. it's like that. I got that's, a question for you. If you're yeah. Thibodeau and you know inside and out the NBA, do you go with Jimmy or do you go with the young kids? I just... I don't think he saw it as a binary question. I think he saw it, thought he could have sided with Jimmy but still have those guys come along. I, I don't it. think he really appreciated just how big a disconnect there was. So and really when he did, it was too late. It was you. a great – I don't know if you watched the, the Game of Zone stuff that was on uh, uh, Bleach Report, but it's like a, a comedy uh, animated series that they do. And it's like, you know, you see – a video of like the entire organization burning down. And that's what it was at that time. It was burning down in that, that last year, but he's like, I'm actually glad he's not here inside the bubble because you can hear everything that coaches say uh, right. on the court. Like Tibbs is like, you know, fuck shit. But like, he is constantly like in, with that, 
that that tone. So I'm glad he wasn't uh, he wasn't a part of it. But I, I, but I gotta say, Tibbs is somebody who I really liked him as a coach. And Jimmy Butler, if if I still have a favorite NBA player, it's Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. How is his reputation for a while as a bad teammate when it just seems? And I'm obviously outside of the world. All this dude wants to do is win. Yeah. No, and and look, one of the big mistakes Philadelphia might live to regret is letting him go. Right. You know, not keeping him around uh, when it seemed like he had a good relationship, at least with Joel Embiid, and if not others, uh, I don't know. I, I you know like he, Miami loves him. Miami thinks they're going to win. Gonna, with him. But if you take a guy with Jimmy Butler's talent, his work ethic, because I remember when we got him in Chicago, we drafted him at the end of the first round, and I didn't think much of him. We already had our squad, and then I remembered the talk where it was either he or Derrick Rose's team. And my first thought was like, get out of here, man. It's Derrick Rose's team. <laughs> and then, because I love Rose, but as it started going, I started realizing like, oh, Jimmy Butler's for real. Mm-hmm. I thought at that moment it was so clear. A guy like that, you throw the bank at him. This is his fourth NBA team. He is yeah. an all defender. He can score. He can handle the ball. He helps young guys develop. And he's going to He's going to bust you hard at practice. And wants the ball late in games, which and not a lot of guys shot. do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I wonder what would have happened in Philly if that Kawhi Leonard shot doesn't go in. The one that bounces six yes. times and totally. it doesn't go in. And it, does it go? Because do they get to the finals? Do they win a championship? I mean, it's just I, I, that simple, man. I, it's I, just that I, simple. As a Chicago Bear fan, you know, when we were in the playoffs in the double doink, right? If that if that kick goes in, I don't know how deep we get in the playoffs. Trubisky's mm-hmm. confidence. If you saw what he did in that game, he had a great game. We are now as a franchise where I'm seeing every you know national media at the bottom of the 32. It all started with that one kick. And the mm-hmm. crazy thing about sports is how you know. Each little moment though of the teeny bit of a bounce of a ball can set an organization back a decade. It's wild. It's, it's wild, wild how how that works out. Um, one thing I want to ask you about, having seen the first episode, uh, you have some cameos in there moving forward. You have some of your castmates from The New Girl that are appearing on the show. Are there any basketball players making cameos as characters on the show? I don't think so i'm trying to remember um yeah i don't think so um if they if there is a season if there is a season two would you want basketball players on you know it's tricky because uh you know it is about basketball but it's about small town so ben hoffman is from kentucky and it is about small town kentucky and coach my character in it is a loser so we would have to figure out how a real guy would ever deal with him. You know, the closest we have is his dad, uh, Barry Hopkins, played in the ABA, played by Rob mm-hmm. Riggle. So potentially if it was a guy his dad's age, you know, maybe if there's a flashback, you know, potentially we could get somebody that way. But it's I'm just think I'm just thinking more like have – a player voice one of them. Like Kevin Garnett would be phenomenal. The most foul mouth player I've ever covered would be phenomenal. Like it'd be natural for him to speak the way he does. Be really funny. <laughs> I mean, I definitely wouldn't be against it. I'll tell you that. No, no, that's a good one. And uh, 
you know, inside this NBA bubble. Do you want me to ask anybody to be on the show inside the bubble as I'm here, as they as they look to get some of their uh, their women friends inside the? Yeah. So tell me about that uh, email you were just telling me about. <laughs> we were talking off the off the air about the the NBA sent a memo around outlining who is allowed in and who is allowed out. Right. So basically saying to sum it up, family members can come in, kids can come in, but people that you meet on social media are not allowed to come in. Basically, you're not allowed to bring in one night stands, so to speak. And to which one one GM said to me, you're going to see a lot of, you know, Aunt Thelma's look like a 19-year-old or a 25-year-old, whatever it is, girl. Did so, he really say that? NBA players, NBA players are playing chess when the league's playing checkers on this subject. Like that's- That is such a funny concept. And here's my question. If everyone's being tested, who cares who they bring in? I agree. I think who cares because if you don't let them bring whoever they want, it makes it more likely they try to burst the bubble and go out and, but also, and get something. What is the difference between somebody's uncle coming to visit, getting tested, and somebody they met besides most likely a really fun two hours for the player? There's no difference. If, if both people, the uncle and the random person on Instagram, both want to be there, why is the league playing godfather here? I don't know. Th- this could be one of those situations where they pivot on the fly. Like if players are like, otherwise they're just going to have guys lying and doing different things to get. <laughs> but they're also you're dealing with something that I do find frustrating with uh, sports at times as a viewer. You're dealing with adults, even though it is a kid's game. And I feel this in my business at times because we're acting, which is essentially a kid's game. You know, if you can do it in junior high school and put on a musical, it's no different than what we're doing. But we are adults doing it. So if I'm on a production and they try to give us like a curfew in the hotel, I'm like, yeah, dude, you're the producer. I'm in my 40s. (laughs) I work for you on set. I do not work for you when I'm off a set. So I'm like, if, if I'm working, I'm a professional athlete and I'm not playing that day and I finish practice and I'm allowed a visitor. What do you think? I'm 16. <laughs> what are you, my parent? Get out of here. Man. I, I think, I think you're lending voice to what a lot of players are thinking right now. Well, Cause like, it doesn't make any sense. Imagine like a group of like IBM does a bubble, right? And they're trying to figure out how IBM can compete with Apple. And then they say to like, dear IBM executives, you're allowed to bring in these people, but you can't bring in that person. Uh, No, I pass. Yeah, I I think a lot of guys are going to be frustrated by by that. Or they're like I said, they're going to have some quote family. They may have to do blood tests to prove some of these people are family members (laughs) that are coming through here. The other question I was talking to you about off air that I would love to get more into if you're comfortable with it is... Mm -hmm. My buddies and I have been talking about the amount of trash talk and the heat that the bubble is generating between some of these players. Because a lot of us have talked about how, you know, if you grew up in the era I grew up with basketball in the 90s, it was a different game. It was way rough. If you took it down the middle, you got hurt. Teams seemed to genuinely hate each other in a way that the new era has changed. There's more switching of teams. A lot of these guys grew up playing together. Yep. Uh, the bubble seems to be slightly changing that a little bit where there yeah. seems to be some, you know, I thought what I, what I read about Paul George reaching out and saying like, I don't want to get too personal. I actually mm-hmm. respect the move like that, but the heat that seems to be generating, do you think that's then just getting, you know, 
away from their families too long, you know, in a hotel and just battling? Or is there something going on in the hallways? Is there shit being talked about at the breakfast? What do you, I what think, do you think of that? You're right that like AAU has changed everything because everything. all these guys were teammates at some yes. point on some level. So it's harder to hate somebody that you, you grew understand. up. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, there is a lot of cross pollination in these hotels. You pass each other constantly, uh, whether it's going to a pool or going to breakfast, wherever you are. It hasn't been that bad yet. There's been some tension in one hotel, which is called the Yacht Club here. Doesn't really look like a yacht club, but it's called that. And that's where all the teams that are fighting for that last spot in the playoffs are are staying. Uh, but where I expect there to be more tension yeah. is when this progresses, right? Because eventually they consolidate to one hotel because Disney's got to open up for others. So when they get to one hotel and you get to a conference finals and you've got Kyle Lowry pissed off walking around and bumps into like I Eric t- Bledsoe in the hallway... Be but some, by the way, I totally scrapping. agree because right now, and it's you know, I think what the NBA is doing is brilliant. I think the bubble is great. I think for the fans, it's really fun. It's been a hell of a distraction. Um, but I do think at a certain point, you know, when if I put myself in their shoes, right? You obviously want to win. In my business, I want the job too, right? So if I'm auditioning for a big movie against another dude who's my type, well, I really do want to beat that person. But if I don't get the job and I go home to my house and I see my family and my kids don't care about my career and my wife doesn't really care, I can forget it. Mm. But if that dude beats me and then I go to a terrible little hotel room, when I say terrible, I don't care how nice it is. Eventually, every room is terrible. Mm. And you're laying on your bed and you're watching the same TV show and all you're thinking about is that dude beat me. And then you have to see him in the hallway. Eventually... You know, the championship, there's one big steak dinner and only one team gets to eat it. Everybody else goes hungry. You were away from your family. You weren't raising your kids and still you don't get to eat the dinner. I mean, they should have cameras. And if they don't, there should be documentaries about that bubble and about those hallways because the the shit talking in an elevator. I'm like, please let the fans see this. This is what we want. I agree. I agree. And this is, this is where I would encourage players to use their access to shoot more stuff you see guys like matisse teibel with the sixers having his own youtube series like shoot those those hallways man shoot those by the way man you're dead right the a guy named ian happ of the cubs Mm -hmm. started a a podcast during quarantine and reached out and we did the podcast and i've been seeing he's been opening up a little bit about what it's like to be a player that level of access is so fun for the fans and there's no bad for it. Any commissioner, any league who says, like, you're not allowed to do this and fine them, like, then get the union against that because there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with opening it up and showing everybody what it's actually like for these players. And I think what it will do for the fans, it'll make us all like them more because, you know, sometimes a regular Joe fan sees the millions of dollars and gets really alienated. But at a certain point, they're just guys and they're competing for their livelihood. And with the amount of pressure they have, it's just a great story. It's what keeps me drawn into sports over and over again. And that is, you know, you can lose your contract at any point, and it really matters how you do that night. And it's a lot of pressure these guys are under, and it's fun to watch. Uh, you're right. The connectivity to fans is important, and doing that would, you know, 
bring you into their lives more and make you more interested in uh, watching them watch them play. Uh, Jake, it's great to talk to you. Great to meet you here. Uh, Hoops debuts August 21st. It's on Netflix. All 10 episodes. The first one I've seen. It's terrific. And uh, uh, hopefully we, you know, if this thing's a big hit, Jake, we want to see NBA guys talking their shit on this show moving forward. Chris, here's what I'll guarantee you. If we get a season two, we will offer roles to many NBA players and I'll follow (laughs) up if they say yes. It is a disgusting show. Just leak it. Leak that you offered it to everybody. Just put it out there on social. There you go. Jake, good to talk to you, man. You too, buddy. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.